Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Isaiah chapter 41. Turn in your Bibles there. Let's pray. God, thank you and praise you for the night. Thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name midweek, Lord. Midweek's um, service is supposed to be a time of refreshing for weary souls, and I know that we have weary souls in this place, Lord, but I, I can't do anything to pick them up. But you can. You are the great refresher. You are the, the lifter of our head, as the psalmist would say. You are the, the one that if we fix our eyes on, uh, Lord, that, that we would never, we would have our strength renewed as as chapter 40 had ended, even, even the youth grow faint and grow weary, Lord, but those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And so we gather tonight to wait on you and to renew our strength, Lord. We pray that you would meet us in this place, that you would help me to rightly divide the word, and God, just that we would leave this place more in love with you than when we came in. For you're worthy of our praise, God. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. So yeah, we, we chapter 40, we covered a, it is the perspective chapter, in my opinion. Uh, um, he likens us to grasshoppers and, uh, you know, where were you when I formed the earth kind of questions that we see at the end of Job, but uh, is also in that chapter 40. I, I, I hold the span of the universe in my hand. I, I hold the dust of the earth in a basket, you know, and we talked about how much dust is that? How many gallons of water are there? You know, 44,000 thunderstorms every day on earth how much water tonnage is dumped on the earth and and he holds the, the waters in the hollow of his hand great perspective he's a big god so now we get into chapter 41 and 42 tonight and this is going to be a challenge from god not well not to you or i specifically because we're hidden in him uh, but we can stray in the way that the israelites had strayed and so it's a challenge uh, from god to his people in light of chapter 40, like I said, chapter 40 gives us that proper perspective that God is big and we are not. We are little. Hear this, God does not share His glory, and He doesn't like it when we rob Him of that glory. It's One of the sins that we can easily fall into. God does not share His glory, and nor should He. He is worthy of our praise. In these chapters, He's going to give the opportunity for both man and gods, small g, gods, to prove that they're worthy of glory. He's going to throw out a test and say, all right, let's see, man, let's see, little g, God, if you are actually worthy of glory. Um, spoiler alert, they're not. <laughs> We're not. They are, we are worthy of judgment. And, and in light of what was happening or what, what was, what's being prophesied here in Isaiah 40 and beyond is the captivity of Babylon, one of the messages that we're going to hear tonight is that nothing is out of control. And that, that's something that we need to hold on to. We need to cling to in the days where there's crazy things going on in our world. The Bible is clear that nothing is out of control, even when it seems not to be the case. History is headed toward His end, His prescribed end. 
And then uh, once more for perspective, we cannot control that future. <laughs> we can't even know the future. <laughs> we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, right? Tomorrow they could suddenly start making Big Macs out of lamb instead of cow. Just saying. I don't know. Could happen. But we don't know. We can't control, we can't know the future, let alone control it, okay? So Isaiah chapter 41, verse 1, it says, Keep silence before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, then let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. So now, as he's talking about Israel and Jerusalem in specific, he's going to broadcast the message. He's saying, Keep silence before me, O coastlands. In the King James, it says the islands. And the idea is he's broadcasting the message to the furthest points from Jerusalem. This message is going out to all. And the message is, shut up. (laughs) Be quiet. Why? Because he's in control. He's in control. Verses 2 through 4, God is going to demonstrate why he is worthy of of this glory that we speak of. In verse 2 it says, Who raised up one from the east? Who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings? Who gave them as dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? The person he's speaking of here, the man that came from the east, this is going to... this person that we're going to find out who it is when we actually get to chapter 45. I'll tell you tonight who it is. He's speaking of Cyrus. Cyrus was the one that God had laid his hand upon um, to turn the tide, to bring down the power of Babylon. The captives were, Cyrus was the one that issued the decree in Nehemiah to send the people back to Jerusalem. What's interesting about Isaiah chapter 41, that's 150 years before Cyrus shows up on the scene. So he's, he's naming, and in fact, in Isaiah 45, verses 1 through 3, he's going to name him by name 150 years before he's even born. The man that would deliver the Israelites from the captivity that they haven't gone to yet. <laughs> that's still in the future as, he, as this is being written. Who raised up one from the east? Who in righteousness called him to his feet? He's speaking of Cyrus. And we get that from Isaiah 45, verses 1 through 3. And it's going to reference back to him several times throughout the next few chapters. Verse 3. Who pursued them and passed safely by uh, the way that he had not gone with his feet? Who has performed and done it? Calling the generations from the beginning. He answers his own question, just so that we don't have any question. I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am He. So verse 4 makes it perfectly clear who is in control. He calls himself the first and the last. That actually happens three different times in the book of Isaiah, that he would call himself the first and the last. Now, that sounds a lot like Revelation, doesn't it? The Alpha and the Omega the first and the last. It speaks of his eternality, that he always was and always will be. That's an incommunicable attribute. Are you and I eternal? No. We have eternal life through his grace and his mercy, but we are not eternal because we had a beginning. 
His eternality is an incommunicable attribute. He doesn't share that. That's Him alone that has that. He always was and always will be. You and I had a beginning. Now we have eternal life through Him. But it just speaks of His power, His might, why He's worthy of this glory. He's the one that's orchestrating all these events that Babylon Babylon would rise up and take the Israelites captive, that Cyrus would rise up after the Babylonians to set the Israelites free. It's God that is in the, 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 the power chair. It is God that is the master conductor of the orchestra. He's, he's telling the flutes when to play, and he's, he's cueing the violins at the perfect time, and, and he has the score in front of him that you and I don't get to see. And so that's why he's able to predict rightly we would call it prophesy, history in advance. Verse 5, the coastlands saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. So uh, upon Cyrus's overthrow of the Babylonian government, upon the uh, Medo-Persians rising up and, and squashing down the strongest empire that had been, been to date, the people of the world saw what was happening and were afraid. Remember, this is still future tense at the time Isaiah is writing. But they're, they're, the world is going to see what Cyrus has done, and they're going to be afraid. It says the ends of the earth were afraid. Look at verse 6. Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, Be of good courage. That sounds like the neighborly thing to do when everybody is afraid. Hey, you go to your neighbor. Hey, hang in there. Be of good courage. Stand strong. We're going to get through this. And while that may seem like the good message, it depends on what's driving that message as to whether or not it's good. Because in light of their fear, they should have turned to God. Perfect love casts out fear, is what the Word would tell us. Jesus being perfect love. If they had turned to Him, which is what He wanted all along, but in light of their fear, they should have turned to God, but, but they don't. As we've seen throughout the book of Isaiah, they don't get it right. Be of good courage, verse 7. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, it is ready for the soldering. What are they talking about? They're talking about building an idol. Well, we just we just we well in this time of crisis, in this time of fear, we just need more gods. If a thousand was a, enough in the days of, of peace, then we just need two thousand of these gods today. So, goldsmith, go to work, buddy. You work hard because we're going to sell these, and this is going to be great. Look at the last sentence. It is ready for the soldering. Then he fastened it with pegs, that it might not totter. <laughs> Sorry, if you have to nail your God down so that it doesn't fall over, what kind of God is that, right? Remember the story of the, the Ark of the Covenant and um, was it Dagon? Yeah, the, the false god Dagon and, they, and they, you know, they're in the same room together and they wake up the next morning and this false god has fall, fallen over and is flat on its face. So they set it up again and, and he falls over again the next night right there next to the Ark of the Covenant. And so they set it up again, and the third night, God's like, all right, we're not playing this game anymore. And they wake up the next morning, and the, the God is destroyed. It's, it's fallen apart because, you know, it's just, the, the, if you have to nail your God down, it's like we talked about last week, make sure you pick a good 
good log to make your God. We don't want your God to have termites, right? You know, if that's your criteria for your God, you're missing something. You've fallen short. This is in a mocking tone, this verse 7, uh, that, you know, encourage the goldsmith, smooths with the hammer, him who strikes with the anvil. It's ready for soldering. Make sure you nail it down, dude. It's the people of earth groping for something, trying to find peace somewhere, looking to their own gods. They're making idols. To make a god is to reveal that that god is smaller than you. And that's no god. If you make your god, that means you have power over it. And it is no god. To make a god is to reveal it is smaller than you. We, rather, you and I, are made by God. Psalm 139. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. We're made by Him. We don't make Him. We're made by Him. And that's why He's worthy of our worship. Amen? Verse 8. But you, Israel, are my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen. Great words here. The descendant of Abraham. My friend. God knows that the nation is going to chase after idols. And in fact, that's kind of why they're driven off to Babylon. He's like, you want idols? You're moving to the place of idols. And Babylon was full of them. The land had not given, they had not given the land its Sabbath rest for 490 years. And God says, fine, I'm, I'm going to exact the Sabbath. I'm going to, I'm going to give the land its rest that it's due 70 years. You guys want idols? You know, you want quail? We'll fill your, fill you till your nostrils are full. You want idols? Off to Babylon you go. Yet, despite the nation's failings, he calls them his own. The ones that he has chosen. The descendants of Abraham, his friend. In in John chapter 15, we get the same consolation from Jesus. Greater love has no one than this, than the one who would lay down his life for his friends. I called you servants before, now I call you my friend, is what Jesus says. But despite our shortcomings, despite our continual failures, I'm always humbled by that line in the song um, From the Inside Out by Hillsong United. You know, a thousand times I've failed, still your mercy remains. And if I stumble again, I'll be caught in your grace. That's that's a beautiful picture. Though we would fail him continually, he never fails us. And, And though he knows the nation's failing, he calls them his own. He says in verse 9, You whom I've taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, You are my servant. I've chosen you. I've not cast you away. He doesn't cast us away. He calls from the ends of the earth. Imagine uh, you know, the nation of Israel not having a homeland for 1,900 years, and then suddenly, after, in, in the um, aftermath of World War II, Israel is given its land back, and, and people come from all over the earth and are still coming from the four corners of the earth, even yet today, to, to gather there in the nation of Israel 
From the ends of the earth He gathers, from the farthest regions, and He does not cast away. Though they were headed to Babylon, that's what God had prescribed, that would not be their final stop. God would bring them back again. He says in verse 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What a great statement. Fear not. It's continuous throughout the Word of God. He would encourage us to fear not. It's going to happen seven times just in the next few chapters. Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing. Just present your requests to God. But with with prayer and thanksgiving, the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. Think about Joshua. I was talking about this with a group of people last night. Joshua, you know, we we know of Joshua and and how he carried the people into the promised land. That was his role. Moses wasn't permitted to go into the promised land. And Joshua was given that charge And we know the battle of Jericho, and we know the the man that Joshua became as we read the beginning of Joshua chapter 1. But who was he before that? He was Moses' right hand. This was a seasoned veteran, this man was. He, He got to ascend at least part of the way up the mountain when Moses got the Ten Commandments. Nobody else was allowed to. Joshua did. Joshua and Caleb, they were the the two of the 12 spies that came back and said, yeah, let's go, we can take the land. That was Joshua. Joshua was the one leading the battle while Moses was standing up on the mountain while Aaron and Hur held up his arms. Joshua was the one leading the army. Joshua was no wet-behind-the-ears kid when he's leading the Israelites into into the promised land. Yet what does Joshua chapter 1 say over and over and over again? God continually reminding Joshua, don't be afraid. Be of good courage. Be bold. Be strong. I'm with you. He says it to Joshua three or four times just in chapter 1 alone. And then even the people echo God and and say to Joshua, yes, you're our leader. You lead us. Just be bold and be of good courage. Why did Joshua have to hear that? Because he was afraid. Even the seasoned veteran who had gone through so much of life, now leading the people, was afraid. The people prepared now to go off to Babylon. Certainly, reason to be afraid. God says, fear not. Why? I am with you. He is the, the, the author of peace. He is the one that, that brings us that great peace Fear is based in the sense of loss. Fear is based in the sense of loss. And and I get that because of the garden um, and the fall of man in the garden. Um, Let me see if I can describe this. um, It says that Adam was afraid because he knew that he was naked. He knew that what he had lost was his relationship with Christ, and so he became afraid. Fear is based in the sense of loss. We, we get afraid or nervous about a job interview because we might not get it. We, we, we have fear of relationship because things may fall apart. We have fear of or different things. Fear comes from a sense of loss. But why not have fear? Because God is with us. Right? Psalm 23, I shall not want. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Notice what he says at the end of verse 10 there. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Good thing he's not trying to uphold me with my righteous right hand, because my righteous right hand ain't a whole lot of good. I'm glad that he comes with his righteousness and exchanges his righteousness for our wretchedness. Verse 11 says, Behold, all those who were incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing, and those who strive with you shall perish. He's saying Babylon's going to fall. Babylon's just on the rise as all of this is being written. They're, They're still a tribe. They haven't even really become an empire yet. But he's saying, predicting the future once again, Babylon will fall. Babylon the Great, as it was known, is going to fall. All will fall. The Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, all will fall. Save Israel. 2,000 years later, through almost 3,000 years later, Israel still stands. In Genesis chapter 12, the word goes out with the promise to Abraham, all those who bless you, I will bless All those who curse you, I will curse. Those who are incensed against you, he says there in verse 11, shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing. And those who strive with you will perish. God's going to gain the victory for his people. He says in verse 12, you shall seek them and not find them. Those who contend with you, those who war against you, shall be as nothing, as, non, as a non-existent thing. Any of you know any Babylonians? No. <laughs> because Babylon doesn't exist anymore. They, it's, it's gone. You shall seek them and not find them. He says, For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. What an awesome picture. I'm going to hold your hand through this. Like a, like a parent would hold a toddler's hand, right? You, you, when you're trying to cross a busy street with a toddler, some of you guys haven't figured this out yet, but you don't just ask them to hold your hand because if they're just holding your hand, they could let go at any moment. <laughs> no, you hold their hand and their wrist and their whole arm as you're crossing the street. That way they're not going anywhere. That's what God is saying to you and I. That's what God is saying to His people. You don't just hold my hand, He's saying. I'm holding on to you. I've got you. Find your strength. Find your peace. We don't just hold His hand. He is holding ours. Saying, fear not. I got this. I will help you. Look at verse 14. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. I don't think this is degrading. I don't, I don't think it's intentionally degrading here. I think, I think it's, it's intentionally um, uh, it, to help us, give us that perspective again. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord in your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. He's, he's reminding you and I, he's reminding the nation of Israel in the, in the text here, that they're little, that they're small. Uh, how helpless is a worm? Pretty helpless. Pretty helpless. But he's reminding them, yes, though you are on your own fairly helpless, I will help you. 
He is strong. I've got your right hand, just like you would a child. Behold, I will make you into a new, a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. Interesting worm. <laughs> I thought it was funny. <laughs> worm with sharp teeth. That's All right, we'll just move along. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. Mountains and hills here are idioms, and throughout Scripture, mountains and hills are idioms for the nations and countries. God is going to strengthen the nation of Israel again. He's going to make them a, multi, a, a power. And in fact, we know that in the millennial kingdom, when Christ returns to the earth and rule and, to rule and reign for a thousand years, He's going to reign from Jerusalem. That will be the power of the world because He will be ruling and reigning from there. He's going to make them rise up. In verse 16, you shall winnow them. The wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel, of course, being the Messiah whom He sent, Jesus, our Christ, our Savior. Glory in the Holy One of Israel. Verses 14 through 16 really said that though they are small and weak, and worm-like, they shall have victory through Christ. Just like we sang, we shall overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. We don't fight for victory. The victory has already been won. We fight from victory. It says in 17, the poor and the needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. As the, the time for them to return home, uh, 70 years captive in Babylon, they were poor and needy people. They were seeking water, not, maybe not literally, but they were, they were longing to go home. And God says, I will hear their cry, and, and I, I'm going to use the Babylonian captivity to turn their hearts back to me. There are times in our lives where God has to let us fall in order for our hearts to be turned back to Him. It takes the Babylonian captivity for their hearts to turn to Him. The verses in front, 18, 19, and 20, God will, and He continues to, rebuild their land. It says in 18, I will open rivers and desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil that be the olive tree. I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together, all kinds of forest and, and, and uh, vibrant life that they may see and know and consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. Even before the Second World War, as, as people began to take interest once again in Israel, uh, the Hebrews began to buy the land back from the Arabs and, and they, they, they were selling it for a dime a dollar because uh, it was a swampland. It, it had become a wasteland and a dry land. There the uh, the desert was dry, there was swamp everywhere, and it was really good for nothing. And so they thought, if we can just even sell it for a cheap price, we will. But if you look at the nation of Israel today and the way that it's turned, just in, in less than 100 years, it's magnificent. I was reading about the forest in the north of 
of Israel that has been planted since they've become a nation again, they've actually increased the nation's rainfall by 15% every year because of the number of trees they've planted in the north. Just as God promised so many years ago, God has, God will rebuild their land. And verse 20 tells us why God has done all this. That they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. Why is He doing all of this? That He might receive glory. 1 Kings 8.60 that, that all the people of the earth might know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. Verse 21, you can write this in your margin if you're a note taker. This is a simple test for God's. Simple test for small g gods. Verse 21 and following. Verse 21 says, Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them, this is the test, let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare to us things to come. And so as he's beginning now to challenge these other gods that the nation of Israel was so intent on chasing after, he says, let's, let's put them to the test. Our God, Jehovah, stands outside of time. He's not bound by time. He stands outside of time. And so he can speak of our origins and our future. He does. The Word of God speaks of both. We, I, I, I wouldn't follow a God that couldn't tell me where I came from. And yet our God has. Very plainly, concisely, and clearly. Because He is outside of time, He can speak of our origins and our future. And so He just simply says, alright, you little gods, tell us about where we came from. I'm listening. Tell, tell me what's going to happen tomorrow. Tell me, tell me what's, gonna, what, what's the end of us going to be. What, tell me something. I'm listening. Is the test. And if, if the God can't speak of our origin or our future, is it really a God worth following? Let's consider the God of sport, one of the ones most worshipped in our country right now. And I'm not saying that sport is bad. I'm saying when you turn sport into a religion, it's bad. Let's put the God of sport through the test. Can the God of sport tell us of our origins? No. Can it tell us what's going to happen tomorrow? Does anybody know who's going to win the Super Bowl? No. Can the God of sport tell us who's going to win the Super Bowl? No. And in fact, Las Vegas is betting on it. A whole lot of money. $120 million will be bet on the Super Bowl because the God of sport can't tell you what's going to happen. So is it a God worth following? No. There are others. The God of academia. The God of comfort. The God of entertainment. Put them through the test as well. 
Many of our nation worship at the throne of God. Those gods. The God of sport cannot predict the winner. So, And then consider the accuracy in the Word of God when it comes to the things of the future. Consider the accuracy of the Word of God regarding the coming of the Messiah. And how many prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus coming the first time? Hundreds of them. We've talked about the probability of one man fulfilling just eight of the prophecies given, right? I've told you that story. The probability of one man fulfilling all just eight of the prophecies, that he was born of a virgin, that he was born in Bethlehem, that he was you know, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, that he was betrayed by a friend. You know, pick, pick even the common ones. The probability of one man being able to fulfill just eight of them is likened to you filling the state of Texas knee-deep with silver dollars, painting one of them red, tossing it somewhere into Texas, and pulling that same silver dollar out. And Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies, not just eight. Incredibly accurate regarding the future is our God. He says in verse 23, Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. He's, he's begging these false gods, these small g gods, just do something. Oh, you're nailed down. I forgot. Sorry. Indeed, you are nothing, and your work is nothing. Listen to this sentence. He who chooses you is an abomination. Strong words. Those who worship false gods are an abomination. Why? Because we become like our God. Even in Christ, when we follow Him, when we pursue Him, we become more like Him. And we follow a false God, we become like it. An abom- a false God is an abomination in the eyes of the Lord. Those who worship false gods are as well. I've raised up from one, I've raised up one from the north, and he shall come. From the rising of the sun, he shall call on my name, and he shall come against princes as though mortar, as potter treads clay, as the potter treads clay. He's speaking again of Cyrus here. He attacked Babylon from the north as he overthrew the city, but he was from the east. He was from Medo-Persia. Verse 26, who has declared from the beginning that we may know in former times that we may say he is righteous. Surely there is no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears your words. The first time I said to Zion, look, There they are, and I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. For I looked, and there was no man. I looked among them, but there was no counselor who, when I asked of them, could answer a word. Indeed, they are all worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. Just look at the four words in that last verse speaking of these false gods. They are worthless. Their works are nothing. Their images are wind and and confusion. Not very good descriptor words for the God that you would want to follow. 
chapter 42. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Speaking here of Jesus, the description now of the Messiah, my servant whom I will uphold. He likens the Savior to a servant. We see the same language in Philippians chapter 2, speaking of the kenosis, the emptying of Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. Christ became the servant whom the Father has upheld, it says there in verse 1. My elect one. This is the one whom the, the Father has chosen, in whom my soul delights. He, he, he loves His Son. I put my Spirit upon Him. We see that in the baptism of Jesus. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He does bring forth that justice through the cross. He will not cry out, it says in verse 2, nor raise His voice, nor cause His voice to be heard in the street. The first time Christ comes, He comes quietly as the servant. Compare that here in a second to verse 13 as we talk of His second coming and the way that He will come there. But the first time He comes quietly, think about what it says in Isaiah 53, the, probably the most famous prophetic chapter about the Messiah. In Isaiah 53, verse 7 of the Messiah, it says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Why? Like he said in the garden, I could call legions of angels to save me. I'm fulfilling what God has called me to do, and that is to die for the sin of the world. And so he remained quiet. A bruised reed, he will not break. A smoking flax, he will not quench. The bruised reed is, you know, when it had been a reed that had been bent by the wind and hadn't completely broken over, but had a soft spot or had a weak spot that it could potentially fall over. Jesus doesn't just walk by and rip it off. A smoking flax, it's something that trying to get into to burst into flame, but just isn't there. He doesn't stomp on it. John 15, he tells us the, that he's the good vine dresser. He lifts the bruised reed. He, he tends to the vine. He, he breathes gently on the smoking flax that it might ignite. It says in verse 4, He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. God does not fail. All others fail. The Gentiles even, the islands, the, the coastlands are going to benefit from the justice that he brings to the earth. Thus says, the God, thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk on it. He holds us in the palm of His hand. Even the breath in our lungs is a gift 
from Him. He created the heavens. He stretched them out. He spread forth the earth. He's in control. The word created there is the word bara. It means to be to create from nothing. It's not something that you and I are capable of. We can't just create from nothing. We have to repurpose things. If I want to build a shed, I can't just go home and with no material build a shed. That's what God did from nothing. Ex nihilo is the word in Latin. From nothing He created. You and I can't do that. God is big. Giving us perspective yet again. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. There it is again. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. He's speaking of the Messiah here. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I'll be with you, Jesus, throughout your life. I will keep you and give you as a covenant. The Father is going to give the Son as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Hmm. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Jesus says in Luke chapter 22, There in the upper room, he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus, the the word of God in Isaiah prophesying, I will give you as a covenant. And Jesus fulfilling that covenant, fulfilling that promise in the in the 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 celebration of communion. This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. It says in verse 7, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. We are the prisoners. We are the blind. I once was blind, but now I see. We sing an amazing grace. He is the healer. He is the captive releaser. We were in the bondage of of sin, and yet He has set us free. It says in verse 8, I am the Lord, that is My name, and My glory I will not give to another, nor My praise to carved images. God does not share His glory, and nor should He. Matthew chapter 5, let your light so shine before men that you might receive glory? No. Let your light shine before men that people might see and glorify your Father who is in heaven. All that we do, that we might bring glory to the Father. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Only God, only Jehovah God can prophesy. Before they happen, He declares it. Verse 10, sing to the Lord then. Sing to the Lord a new song, and His praise from the ends of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants, all of them. He's, he's crying out. Isaiah now, in light of all of these testing and finding all these gods have fallen short of the tests that God the Father has given, the proper response is to praise Him. Sing to the Lord a new song. Praise Him from the ends of the earth. He's saying all of the earth declare the worth of God. Worship Him. That's the right response that you and I would live. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. The village, 
the villages that Kedar inhabit, inhabits. The inhabitants, let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the tops of the mountains. All the people of the earth, he sang. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up His zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. Remember, He was quiet before. Now look at verse 13. In His second coming, He will shout aloud. He shall prevail against His enemies. God always wins. I've held my peace a long time, He says. I have been still and restrained myself. Now I will cry like a woman in labor. I will pant and gasp at once. Consider what He went through in the Garden of Gethsemane to to buy our souls, to save us. The anguish and the suffering as He said, let this cup pass from Me, but nevertheless not My will, Thy will be done. He sweat to the point that drops of blood trickled from His forehead. Very similar to the, the anguish and the pain of a woman in labor. I will lay waste the mountains and the hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will make the river coastlands and I will dry up the pools. I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. I just have to say it again. I once was blind, but now I see. He is the Redeemer and Restorer. Verse 18 to the end, God is now going to rebuke His servant, not rebuke Jesus. God is going to rebuke His servant Israel. The the chosen nation. Those that were chasing after those things that were going to end them up in Babylon. So it says in 18, Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see, Who is blind but my servant, or deaf is my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as he who is perfect, and blind as the Lord's servant? Seeing many things, but you do not observe. Opening the ears, but he does not hear. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will exalt the law and make it honorable. Remember, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to uphold it. But this is a people robbed and plundered. All of them are snared in holes, and they are hidden in prison houses. They are for prey, and no one delivers. For plunder, and no one says restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will listen and hear for the time to come? Who will give Jacob for plunder and Israel to the robbers? Was it not the Lord? He against whom we have sinned. For they would not walk in His ways, nor were they obedient to His law. God chastises those whom He loves, it says in Hebrews. He corrects, and He will let them walk through the valley of the shadow of death in order that they might see the error of their ways and return to Him. Therefore, He's poured on them the fury, it says in uh, 25. Therefore, He's poured on Him the fury of His anger and the strength of battle. It has set Him on fire all around Yet he, he being the servant, he being Israel, yet he did not know, and it burned him. He did not take it to heart. The God test that you can carry with you from tonight, can your God tell you of where we came from, your origin? Can God tell you where you're going? 
the purpose for you being here, what your destination is. If your God fails the test, find another. Jehovah God, our God, is the only God who passes the test. He is the only God worthy of our praise. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's close in prayer. Yes, Lord, You alone are worthy of our praise. We've come to worship You in this place, to be with like-minded people. I pray that the things that we've heard today would stir our hearts with affection toward You, Lord, would give us the right perspective of just how majestic and wonderful, how sovereign You are in control of all things. Lord, You pass the test that You gave. You speak of origin and You speak of destination, Lord. So we worship You. We praise You. We love You. Be with us as we leave this place. May we let our light shine before men that people may see our good works and glorify You. We ask all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.